Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Between the Lines. And check out our new show, Just Between Us, every week on our YouTube channel. And please, become a patron at barrykibrick.com to help us continue our mission. Dr. David Hanscom is known worldwide for his skills as a back surgeon. So why would he want to put himself out of business? Welcome, I'm Barry Kibrick, and the answer is because Dr. Hanscom is on a higher mission, and that is to eliminate chronic pain, be it from the back, any part of our body, or even from our emotions. With his book, Back in Control, he gives us a surgeon's roadmap out of chronic pain. Doc, it is a pleasure to have you on the show. I personally believe so much in what you've written. I even have some of my own theories about it as I joked with you before, but I really think this is important. And I joked in the opening, you're the only doctor who's trying to put yourself out of business, but we'll get into that. Welcome to the show, Doc. Thank you, Barry. I'm delighted to be here. Also very honored to be here. Thank you. It's my pleasure. I want to start that what I found This is not a book just based on research, although it's backed up by research. What I found most amazing is it's your own personal chronic pain that you had to deal with. And that's what makes this so honest and so believable is that you dealt and continue to deal because it's always a continuum, isn't it? Correct. And you continue to deal with it. And that made it much more genuine and honest of a, of, a, of a story. I went into chronic pain for 15 solid years, which is a really long time to be in chronic pain. I went from being this fearless, high-level complex spine surgeon to panic attacks in one day. How could that be? It made no sense. I had no idea how it started. I came out of it by accident in 2003. It took me another five years to get a feel that something wasn't right here. And then the last five years of neuroscience research has really, really backed up what I experienced. I think the book's been quite effective because I went through every millimeter for a long time. And 15 years is a really long time to be in chronic pain. And people look at me and go, well, how can this be? I'm fine. And I am. I'm actually thriving at a level I've never thrived at in my entire life. But I was at the worst of the worst. I had extreme chronic pain. I could look at any patient and say, look, I know you're in chronic pain. I know you're miserable. You might be in as bad of a shape as I was, but not worse. I went through every millimeter of this myself for 15 solid years. And part of it, and by the way, before we even go further, let's discuss exactly what chronic pain is versus acute pain, in case people don't realize the difference. Because acute pain is that, well, you, you, you tell us, you're the doctor. Well, let me just give you the neuroscience definition that's currently on deck the last five years. Basically, chronic pain is an embedded memory that gets meshed with more and more life experiences and the memory can't be erased. The the medical definition is pain that lasts longer than the expected healing time. It turns out that chronic pain is a neurological problem. It gets precipitated by an acute injury, but once the brain memorizes and embeds the pain in the nervous system, it actually shifts to a different part of the brain and it becomes permanent. Thing I want to bring out, as you say, and to play off of that, is chronic pain is caused by both physical and emotional factors. But I want to make clear that it's not that, well, wait, this is kind of funny. The pain actually is in your brain to some extent, but it's not in your mind. In other words, it's real pain. Absolutely. I mean, if you didn't have a nervous system, 
you would not feel pain. Pain is a gift. People that are born without pain fibers called congenital indifference to pain, they only survive about 10 years. They can't protect themselves. Pain is one of the sensors that helps us survive. We have vision, taste, sight, smell, etc. All those help us survive in the environment, but pain is particularly important because pain represents a threat. You have to take evasive action. They've never been able to duplicate the pain system in the laboratory ever. So it's a wonderful, beautiful, complex gift. But when it becomes chronic pain, what happens is, is that your, your, according to you, your brain is actually getting rewired Correct. to a certain extent so that it, it literally, and what it, as, you, as you said before, the pain, and you say it in the book, the pain increases your anxiety and the anxiety increases your pain. So it's a circle that's playing out. Again, I want to be careful, not playing out psychologically in your mind, right. but playing out neurologically, literally in right. your brain. Right. Anxiety is the pain, by the way. In other words, anxiety is just a sensation generated by the body's stress chemicals. You have adrenaline, cortisol, histamines. When your body's full of those chemicals, you feel anxious. Anxiety is a result of a threat. It's not a psychological issue. It's a neurochemical response to the environment. Any threat, mental threat or physical threat, is met with a stress chemical response. Then you feel anxious. The reason why it's so critical is that the survival response is a million times stronger than the conscious brain. Anxiety is not subject to psychological interventions. It's a million to one ratio. The way you solve anxiety is you teach yourself how to decrease the stress chemicals. When your body is full of oxytocin, the love drug, dopamine, reward drug, serotonin, antidepressant, then the GABA drugs, which are like Valium, the play chemicals, it's incredible chemical bath. When your body has the sustained levels of stress chemicals, not only do you not feel good, it translates into physical symptoms, and people die. People die seven years earlier in chronic pain. Your purpose and your mission, I want to say both because it has now become a mission. You, Correct. You even just told me you're leaving your, your lucrative practice to really bring this out as a public service to people. Right. And the key to it, as you say, I'll read your words exactly, it's retraining your brain to lay down new, more positive neural pathways that wire around the old destructive ones. So you're, you're, you're not eliminating so much the destructive ones. You can't. As you say in the book, every, you're gonna, every emotion, everything stays within you at all times. But you can rewire these neural pathways through a, a, a various processes. We may not get into all of them, right. but they are outlined in the book. But that's the key, though, isn't it? It's to replace those pathways with a new pathway. Right. The metaphor I like to use, first of all, anxiety is a sensation generated by the stress chemicals. There's two ways of decreasing the stress chemicals. One of them is directly, mindfulness, meditation, relaxation tools. But the other way, which is more important, is to decrease the reactivity of the brain. In other words, you have stress, survival response, and what you want to do is you want to dampen that survival response. You have less stress chemicals. Stress isn't the problem. It's a chemical reaction. The metaphor I like to use is like learning a new language. If I want to learn Italian, for instance, I'm going to go to the books, do repetitions. But let's say in five years I speak fluent Italian. What happened? My brain changed, right? 
I didn't learn Italian by not speaking English. I learned a language by changing my brain. Same thing with chronic pain is that you can't come out of chronic pain by trying not to be in pain. You have to create a part of your brain that knows how to enjoy life. I call the new language an enjoyable life. Remember the default language is survival, stress hormones. And what you're doing, you're substituting a different nervous system. It's like a virtual desktop and a computer. So just like you don't learn Italian by not speaking English, you can't undo chronic pain by trying not to be in pain. You gotta develop this whole nervous system, which is very doable, not very hard by the way. Once you create this new nervous system, it's like a virtual desktop in your computer. It's marvelous. You say in fact though that the medical profession is focused always on finding a structural problem when you really say, I mean obviously you break your leg, you've gotta repair it, right. okay? But what you really say is that 99% are more likely that your physical symptoms are arising from physiological responses to the environment. So again, it's not in your, you're not making this up. People, that was the biggest problem with chronic pain for right. so many times, right. for so many years. You mentioned in the book, people didn't believe it. I mean, oh, you, you, you gotta be healed. You can't be in chronic pain. Well, right. it had nothing to do with the injury after a while. Right. It did maybe in the very beginning, but it didn't later on. Right. And yet the medical profession seems so opposed to this for the most part. There are a few doctors like yourself that are breaking away from it, but it's like you said, 99% always are looking for where's that problem. And in your case, I, 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 I wanna give you this chance, the back, the fusion of the back almost never ever helps anyone except for at most a little while. I spent eight years doing fusions for back pain. When I was in Seattle, when I first started my practice in 1986, we had nine times, nine times the rate of spine fusions per population as anybody else in the entire country. I was a zealot. I was on fire. I would a clinic all day. I would do a back fusion at night. The data came out in 1993 that the success rate for a back fusion for back pain was 22%. I just stopped. I immediately stopped. I go, wait a second, this is not working. And my patients were about 40, 45%, but I worked very hard on rehab. I, I had no idea about chronic pain, none. That was about the time I dove into chronic pain deeply, about 1990, just went totally in the hole, first panic attack. And right now, spine surgery, there's not one paper, not one research paper that says spine surgery works for back pain, not one. It's a $14 billion a year industry, $14 billion a year. This, listen, I, I gotta love it. it. This is mind boggling. That's why I had to have you on the show. It's mind boggling. I don't know what, how, how do you describe it even? I, I quit, I honestly quit surgery at the peak of my practice. I had a wonderful job, wonderful partners. I love training my fellows. I had an ideal dream practice. And I'm still having a hard time personally letting go of the fact that I loved my practice. I love helping people surgically. I was an excellent surgeon excellent teacher, and every fellow I train has their own impact on the world. I love doing that. It bothers me. I started seeing people getting better and better without surgery, much more quickly and effectively because I became better at the tools. The second edition of this book is much more based on neuroscience than the first edition. We've now, we've now pulled in family issues, which have been a huge impact, but people get better. It costs maybe $500 to $2,000 for people to go pain-free. And these are people 10, 20, 30 years of chronic pain. These are the worst of the worst situations. These are not simple situations. 
I'm watching these people go pain-free, then I'm watching now people with 10, 14 level fusions being done on normal spines that are crippling their lives completely. I couldn't watch it anymore. What I found shocking with two things that you said that is detrimental to this, positive thinking right. and self-esteem. Right. Now, if we're doing anything in the world right now, it's it's every self-help book is all about positive thinking right. and self-esteem. And those are the two biggest impediments right. to curing chronic pain or any of the other emotional things you're dealing with. You must explain that, Doc. Can I ask you a question? Does that make sense to you? Totally, by the way. Can I ask totally. you? Totally. Can I? Ask, do you mind if I interview you just, you just for a second? I'd love it. Well, here's the thing. I mean, it's absolutely correct. And I do a workshop at Omega every year. We're doing the next one June 7th through 9th. It's with my daughter, my wife, and myself. And it's all based on what's called the Ring of Fire. And what you're doing, you're training your brain to become comfortable with anxiety and anger. You can't get rid of this stuff. That's right. Because you train your brain to be less reactive less stress chemicals, less anxiety, more creativity, your brain changes. I'm curious from your perspective, when I say that, what about that re resonates with you? I'm very curious. Well, what resonates with me is that, I'll tell you why it resonates with me, because no matter how much I did try the positive thinking, I knew I kept going back. I kept going back into a depression or an anxiety, depending right. on how you want to phrase it. Right. So what I learned to do is, like you said, is accept that it's never going to go away. Correct. Really do that. Just say, my anxiety, my stress, my, it's never going to go away, so why bother even trying? Right. And that was the first thing that started to calm right. me down. Right. What I did then want to do is, I wanted to be able to just decrease the times and in those times when I was depressed and anxious right. and increase those times when I were not. And knowing that I couldn't eliminate them allowed me to do that. So that's why I really, when I read those things, I said it shocks me at first only due to literature, but it doesn't shock me when it comes to myself because I know that I can't get rid of this stuff, right. but I can deal with it. I can shrink those moments of depression and anxiety. And somebody will say though, well, don't you use positive thinking to do that? And I say, it's not so much positive thinking that I'm using, it's changing my thoughts completely. Right, it's positive substitution. But, oh, I love that. Yeah, say that, positive, tell us more. It's positive substitution. In other words, again, the way you solve anxiety, you, you decrease the levels of the body's stress chemicals. Mindfulness, meditation, relaxation works, helps solve them, but you're trying to change your brain, which requires awareness, it's a little bit of space, and then you substitute. Awareness, by the way, you say, is the first step. You Absolutely. must have that awareness. Right. You have to be willing to be able to not just be aware, but experience anxiety, experience anger. And honestly, you have to be okay with it. But allow yourself to be with anxiety, allow yourself to be with anger. And it's a train, learn skill. Remember, it's a million to one ratio. You cannot do this psychologically. But really train your, body, your brain in the midst of this trauma coming in is that the adversity and stress becomes your opportunity to practice the tools. You actually welcome adversity. It's, uh, I, I, I'm, I, that's, 
is that not the best thing you can do? If you welcome that adversity, right. when it comes, you're looking at it with joy. I had I, I had on do, um, a gymnast, a great gymnastics coach, Valerie Fields, and she said when she was undergoing cancer treatment that she would look at going to chemotherapy as going to the spa. Really? And that okay, really, there there, am I right? And that, right. so she knew that she was still undergoing the treatments, she right. knew that, but it was like going to a spa. And that's not positive thinking. No. That's reframing the situation. Reframing, in fact, is a great right. tool. You don't have to enjoy the adversity, right? That's right. not the key. If you enjoy the adversity, it wouldn't be adversity, right? <laughs> right? Okay. Yes. And then it's a subtle difference, but it's a huge difference. But the key issue, and go back to the original comment that I didn't answer the question, the reason why positive thinking is such a disaster, it's a grandiose global way of suppressing negative thinking, right? And there's a lot of papers out of Harvard, Austin, Texas, and Pennsylvania that shows when you suppress thoughts, it actually makes them stronger, but also there's a trampoline effect that makes them a lot stronger. It's also the basis for obsessive thought patterns. I didn't realize this till a few weeks ago, but the suppression of thoughts and concepts is the basis for obsessive thinking. Because if you try not to think about something, your mind's tintillated, it goes there. Remember, anytime you pay neurological attention to anything, you strengthen it. You try not to be in pain, guess where your brain is? And when I tell my patients that you can't fix yourself, the key is to create a vision and move forward. Because if you try to fix yourself, you must have put your hand right into a hornet's nest. These are survival patterns, right? And you can't rearrange that deck. And what you're doing, you create a vision, what do you want your life to look like with or without the pain? As you move towards that vision, you simply use these pathways less. Yeah. And those pathways, when they literally, as, as it's almost like everything else, if you use them less, they get less in your way. Right. If you use the other ones more, they stay more in your consciousness. Correct. You have a term, though, you use, and I, I'd like to get into because I, I found it, it's kind of a neat visual image to give people, plugging the drain. Right. When people talk about stress management, they're always talking about take a vacation, exercise more, et cetera, et cetera. And if you just picture a bathtub being filled up with water, obviously the water coming in are these things that nurture your soul, which are really critical. But if you're anxious and frustrated, it's like having this huge drain at the bottom of the tub, is that you can't use things and accomplishments and people to plug that hole in the bottom. And what you're doing with these tools, you're learning to, like you said before, minimize the amount of time you're anxious and angry. In other words, you're not trying to suppress it or avoid it. I, I get anxious and frustrated, but I don't stay in the hole as long. Unfortunately, these are survival patterns. When I get triggered, bam, I go all the way to the floor. And my wife will testify to that. I don't like it. She doesn't like it. But I'm human. I'm going to be triggered. But I've learned when I'm triggered not to take action. I have a little mantra saying no action in a reaction. And I just take the deep breath. I don't spend a lot of time being angry anymore. But I'm plugging up the drain. And you probably notice, like I have, that when you become anxious and angry, that's what ruins the day, right? I mean, stress is what it is. Life is what it is. But when you get angry and upset, you have this big adrenaline surge. It just sucks the energy right out of you. And for me, if I get angry, which I still do, I like not to, but the bottom line is when you get angry, you have this big chemical surge, it's physically draining your body of energy. I had it happen on the way home from work yesterday. Okay. 
work whatever it was. I'm not going to get into the details. Okay. It was zapping. Literally, I felt my soul being sucked out of me. Right. That's and and I, I wasn't even so much angry as I was. I almost I not almost I was crying on the ride home because I felt my soul's energy right being drained. Right. That's the key. I, I would first of all applaud you for allowing yourself to feel that. That's be, that's awareness, and. Again, the sensation that you're getting, your body's full of all these chemicals, right? And In fact, may I say something? I, I'll, I'll sure. be speaking honest. I actually took a little chemical to help with that anxiety, and right. I don't. And I'm, you, you're not against that in the book either. If I am you not. need to, you take it. Right, and I won't. I can't go into detail personally, but I spent four years doing this myself. I turned. I went from a tertiary major spine surgeon to a primary care back doctor, back doctor for four years in Sun Valley. And obviously the opioid epidemic is a big deal. It turns out that 40% of my entire practice is with infected spines. Most of those from, are from IV drug abuse that ends up in the spine. The dirty needles end up in the spine. It's the mental pain is a huge problem. People cannot escape their mental pain. And so what happens is we sort of, so in the trenches, I would keep people in their same narcotics, same anti-anxiety drugs. I would stabilize the medications. I gave them control. They had complete control of the narcotics. I've had people on over 1,000 milligrams of oxycodone a day come off all medications, no pain. They had control. In this day and age, we're now restricting access to drugs, which is a huge problem because it increases the anxiety. It's the one worst thing we, we could be doing for the opioid epidemic right now. Opioids were not a problem. People, nobody wants to be an addict. Nobody wants to be on narcotics. The world has labeled all these people as, quote, dependent on drugs. Nobody wants to be dependent on anything, especially drugs. Even the worst IV drug addicts you can ever imagine, who are my patients, they don't want to be addicts. But yeah, medications are a huge factor. Initially, get things stabilized. But as you learn to auto-regulate auto your body's chemistry, then you don't need the drugs. It's exactly exactly what it is. But right. here's the thing though, Doc, I want one last thing because I, I find this again, I, I think to be one of my key problems. It's those racing thoughts that right. go through it. And I want to read your exact words. The key with both racing thoughts and our life circumstances is to use tools to pull ourselves back into the center. Right. And that's what I was saying before was my goal was to Literally, not to eliminate, but just pull back yep. into the center. Right, absolutely. I mean, one of the metaphors I use is a hurricane, where the wind represents your racing thoughts or circumstances, most of which you can't control. We spend a lot of time trying to control things we can't control. And as you pull yourself into the center, your thoughts can whirl, the circumstances can do what they're going to do. Then you have the energy to actually deal with what you want to deal with. They call it solving the unsolvable. Once you realize you can't solve anxiety and frustration, you quit beating your head against the wall, you have a tremendous energy to live your life. And Doc, as you said, we don't have control of all our circumstances. Our time is up. Okay. But I want to thank you so much for not only sharing your wisdom, but this book is going to literally put people back in control. Thank you for joining thank us. Thank you. This, it was a pleasure. Oh, it's my pleasure. And thank you all for joining us to listen to my podcast, which has additional content that we didn't have time for on our broadcast. 
Search for Between the Lines with Barry Kibrick on your favorite podcast provider. And to comment or ask me anything about our show, just visit my website at barrykibrick.com. And if it's even more personal, you can email me at barry at barrykibrick.com, and I promise to personally respond. But before we do go, I would like to leave you with these few more words from Dr. David Hanscom. By providing a systemic approach to dealing with all aspects of a pain problem, you could almost always help patients become more functional and many would experience a nearly complete recovery. I'm Barry Kibrick. We all deal with many issues that cause us pain, but between them all, there is a light and it can guide us to recovery. Thank you, Doc. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Between the Lines, and please check out our new show, Just Between Us, every week on our YouTube channel. And think of becoming a patron at barrykibrick.com to help us continue our mission.